This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, December 12, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In 2015, the Supreme Court detailed the conflict of interest inherent in giving state boards of licensure, often market participants, the ability to limit competition in those very markets. States, for the most part, haven't paid much attention to the court's decision. And that's just one problem. Steve Slavinsky, a researcher at the Pacific Legal Foundation, details a larger problem for the millions of people who require a license to do their jobs. It's been said many times here and elsewhere that a a massive fraction uh, and arguably an unconscionable fraction of the American workforce requires a government approved license in order to do that job. And uh, these licenses are handed out by licensing boards at the state level. And those licensing boards are then appointed by governors or other some other specific uh, individual or group is uh, charged with uh, approving members. But one wrinkle that I've spoken about with Daniel Dew and uh, with you now is how those licensing boards are even, uh, how those appointees are even selected. So how does that happen? So this is unlike most government appointments. Typically, you'll have a governor who will come to the state legislature and say, we have to fill these seats. They're appointed positions. The Constitution says, I, as the governor, have the power to appoint people as long as the state legislature deems them to be competent and reasonable and worth you know, being a member of, of the board or this appointment committee or something like that. And that's typically how it works for pretty much every appointment position uh, in most states. However, licensing boards are a different kind of breed. They're certainly a different breed of board, and that's one thing that we do know. Uh, In fact, this is more than just a a research uh, regularity. We see this over 20 or 30 years of empirical research that show that licensing boards tend to keep out competition, right? And part of the reason we know this is because the people who are on the boards are people who who want to keep out competition. Uh, They're what they're called uh, private market actors, if you think about it that way. And in fact, in in, uh, the specific legal language that was appearing in the Supreme Court decision of uh, 2015, it's called the North Carolina Dental Decision. This is back where the federal government effectively said, uh, through a a suit from the Federal Trade Commission, said that the North Carolina Dental Board, uh, when they were sending out cease and desist letters to teeth whiteners, claiming that they were practicing dentistry. And therefore, they needed a dental license. And to get a dental license... Teeth whiteners, people operating within salons? Oh, yes. Or uh, shopping malls, even. Uh, Basically, these are people that were practicing dentistry in their eyes and therefore needed to have a dental license. To get a dental license, of course, it's lots of fees, lots of time, and usually a dental diploma from a certified dental school. And so uh, you can clearly see how the barriers to entry would be very high if you're required to be, uh, uh, rather to get a dental degree, uh, simply to do teeth whitening. Uh, The reason I bring that up is sort of table setting to give you an example of the kinds of people who are on boards, because what happened with the North Carolina dental decision, the Supreme Court ruled that the majority of members on the dental board were those who were what they call private market actors, people who already had their license and had an incentive to keep out competition. So it's sort of, it's a conflict of interest really, right? And most people, when they saw that, thought, well, that's obvious. This is kind of a, a weird way of doing things. Well, problem is most states since then have not done anything to really change what the board looks like. They still have a majority of members are those who are within the industry. They have an incentive to keep people out. And of course, these boards have lots of power. They have power to uh, to interpret statutes that might be rather ambiguous. 
right? They can interpret statutes, for instance, that licensing boards uh, often are able to deem certain people not of good moral character to decline a license, right? This, this has very obvious problems for people trying to come out of prison, who are trying to get back into the workforce to keep themselves out of prison. And this actually drives up the recidivism rate in a lot of places over time. Uh, people who are trying to work their way out of poverty, out of the inner city, uh, minority entrepreneurs and, and the like, people, uh, immigrant entrepreneurs trying to, to start you know, their, their American dream. These are the people who are being hurt most by having a majority of the seats on these boards, among them, people who want to interpret laws in the strictest way possible to allow fewer people in. But here's the additional wrinkle. If you put that power and the, who these people are, together with how they're appointed. You might think, well, all the governor needs to do is maybe appoint people who are more reform-minded. Sure, you're a doctor, you've got a license in good standing, but maybe you see the problems with keeping out competition. Maybe you realize consumer prices are higher because uh, you have a restriction in supply. That's exactly what happens, right, in these types of situations. And so maybe you're a doctor who is more consumer-facing. Maybe you want to liberalize some of these laws. The problem is, among all 50 states, there's at least 96 statutes that I've identified in my research at Pacific Legal Foundation that force the governor to appoint only those who are on a list handed to him by the trade association, by the special interest, by the people who want to keep out competition. So this is where the nomination process for a licensing board differs radically from a license, rather from a, an appointment to, say, a court or to any other sort of regulatory board. So uh, let's let's recap <laughs> a little bit here. These licensing boards have enormous power with in within an industry, um, and they are almost all uh, represented by a trade association that lobbies the state regularly for mm -hmm. any number of things, including the kinds of laws you're talking about. Right. And then uh, the governor is effectively, or whoever the appointing uh, person is, often a governor, um, is hamstrung in terms of the range of people that he can appoint to those boards. And so, you know, how, what what are the follow-on effects from that? Sure. I mean, this is basically a delegation of power to private market interests who want to keep, you know, people out. So I think there's, first of all, there's a lot of downstream effects. Uh, the potential downstream problems here are that you'll just have uh, boards that are effectively, uh, they have carte blanche, and as a result, they will effectively keep more and more people, uh, decline rather, more and more applications for licenses. Now, one of the, the challenges here is a lot of the expected outcomes we're, that we're, we're thinking we'll see in all of this is that uh, it hasn't really been explored that much. And so a lot of the literature in uh, occupational licensing research looks at the overall burden of licensing, meaning the number of hours that are required, number of fees, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and especially in medical fields, you see this a lot, right? They also talk about whether there's certain types of price effects, certain types of labor market and wage effects. So these are a lot of the big picture uh, analysis that have been done on occupational licensing. But there hasn't been a lot of micro, what I call political economy research being done on licensing boards. And so I hope to, over time, begin to build out some of that. And this is just the first step. The first step is to figure out what does board, what do boards look like? How do they get the way they, they look? And, and how, why are they that way? Uh, part of them is statute law, obviously. Uh, and then the question is, what are the downstream effects? And so the downstream effects you would expect to see would be a lower number of licenses that, that are being um, uh, that are being approved. Uh, you might see 
the more frequent invocation of good moral, ambiguous good moral character provisions and, and ambiguous definitions to keep people out. And so one thing that we'd like to do, and one thing that's fun for me as a researcher, Pacific Legal Foundation, which is something a lot of researchers in the academic space don't have, which is we work with attorneys and we get to file Freedom of Information Act requests or or uh, public records requests. And what we can do is we can go into uh, the records of the proceedings of all the boards to see why have they declined a license? What, what What's the reason for this? And so getting into the nuts and bolts of how these laws are actually enforced, that's something I think we need to, uh, to have more attention to uh, as researchers and as analysts. Does that open up challenges? I mean, I can imagine uh, a licensing board declining uh, on a basis that doesn't exist anywhere in law, uh, mm. that they, you know, because they've had this power effectively delegated to them and they're have a broad range of uh, discretion that they can use. Is, does that open up a legal challenge? It certainly does. One term I've learned after uh, working with uh, with attorneys as long as I have is that we call it cause of action. Basically, the idea is that what's you know what the grounds that we're going to sue on. Uh, and there's actually a multiple number that get unlocked when you think about licensing in this way. Uh, a lot of them come from the North Carolina Dental Decision. The idea that you actually have no executive oversight or very little anyway as defined by the Supreme Court, of these licensing boards. Because if you had the ability to, to do oversight, you'd also have the ability to decide who gets to be on the board in the first place. And so we have laws that are, that are written and deeply embedded within them, outright violations of the North Carolina dental decision, not to mention uh, outright violations of very simple traditional constitutional principles. If you're going to give the governor the power to appoint these positions and the legislature the, the chance to approve them, you have to give the, the the governor also the power to decide who those appointees will be before they get to the state legislature. And, and laws like this effectively short-circuit and, and circumvent that option. Steve Slavinsky is a researcher at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>